This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. My name is Jason Breifel from Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, and I'm pleased to be joined by two awesome guests today who are going to be talking with me about all things skills-based hiring, what it is, how it's going, what's it all about, what you need to know, and why you really should be paying attention to this if, you, in fact, you're not already working on it, and hopefully you are, um, because the president has told federal agencies that they need to a few years ago. Um I'm excited to introduce and welcome to the program um, to our two guests, Juanita Serrano. She's the Vice President of Social Impact and Innovation at 2U. Thanks for being with us, Juanita. Thanks, Jason. Happy to be here. Um, and our other guest today is Adam Ray. He's the founder and CEO of Astro Mu. Great to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. And as we kind of dive into this conversation today, I'd like each of you to kind of share a little bit about your own background and about your organizations. And um, and I think that'll help set the stage for, for where we're going to kind of talk about, you know, the opportunities here, some of the challenges and making this pivot in the way that we organize and think about the economy. Um, what are you seeing out there on the ground? Obviously, technology uh, plays a huge role here. Uh, and then what are, what are some of the bigger implications for, for our listeners? Um, but, but first, I want to help uh, set the stage with, with your stories. And, and Juanita, I'll, I'll invite you to kind of share a little bit about yourself and, and your journey um, and a little bit about um, the organization. Yeah, so my journey has been a very windy road. Um, I graduated from San Francisco State with an Asian American Studies degree which is ethnic studies, and really tried to find an intersection with education and did that through financial services, so financial literacy, taught abroad for a while, came back, went back into financial services, and then kind of saw the ceiling of where I was and spoke to a few people and realized that I needed to go back specifically to gain skills to be more competitive in the market. So I joined Rutgers Coding Bootcamp. I came out as a full stack web developer and ended up not becoming a developer and instead using those skills to be able to bridge the gap between technologists and people who need technologists. And then the, you know, the wider world of how we think about it and how when we're talking about digital skills and coding and data science, that it's not just the engineers that need that um, specific education. It's everyone and every company is becoming a technology company. And we're seeing that across the board. Um, so yeah, started working for Trilogy Education who ran that bootcamp, um, which has now morphed and uh, been acquired by 2U a few years back, really loving what we do, which is really free to degree uh, anywhere from you're interested in just getting better at speaking and you want a free course to kind of hone those skills all the way to getting a doctorate or master's degree online. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, and we're going to pull the thread on some of some of that, uh, what you shared through the conversation. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that you noted that many companies um, and, and employees, you know, are either becoming technologies or need these digital skills. And, and I saw Adam smile when you noted that, um, seeing your background in, 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 the, in the tech and in, in the IT space. Adam, um, please let us uh, know a little bit more about you and the company. 
Yeah, no, no. I must have been that rare person who knew exactly what he wanted to do. That would be a negative. Did not have a clue. Uh, you know, I, I often uh, laugh, Jason, uh, when um, when people ask kids that are in college, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up or when you graduate? And I'm like, like I should say the same question to them at maybe 38 or 48. We're all trying to figure it out as we go. Um, but my background um, also is to the liberal arts. Uh, though I run an AI uh, data platform company, I'm an English major with a minor in history and German, uh, which makes me supremely qualified, of course, to run an AI company. Uh, not really, but uh, nonetheless, the uh, underpinnings, it's funny when you go through life, the undergraduate studies in the liberal arts are not very valued uh, when you come out of school because they're generalists. Uh, cognitive analytical uh, skill sets, critical thinking, communication, writing. These are like underpinnings of durable skills that are incredibly important. The farther you get through life, the more you need to communicate and work with people uh, to get things accomplished. But when you're early in your career, we have an incredibly hard time quantifying those skills. And we don't really know what to do with an individual. So we say, go get some hard skills. So when I graduated from the University of Kansas, um, the at the particular time, you, you know, People are, if you were an engineer or if you were an accountant, you had a job. If you were an English major, you were a waiter. Uh, and so, or you went to law school. So I chose not to go to law school. Oh, excuse me, there wasn't one other option. You can go get a PhD and be a professor, uh, which I did get accepted into Columbia to become a PhD to do late 19th, early 20th century American novelist. And I'm just very glad I didn't take that path. Nothing against PhDs and professors. Of English, you know, I totally respect it, but I just think I, I probably having a little bit more fun this journey. Um, but long story short, uh, what I, I've learned through that process is, you know, I bounced through and ended up in technology when technology was still considered in the 90s and early aughts to be a bolt-on to the industry. As Juanita said, I think we're all technologists now, whether we realize it or not, we're all involved in it. In fact, one, one might argue with AI, that and all the the hype going on with generative AI and large language models, that you know, if you don't understand it, you might be in trouble. Uh, and so, you know, there's been this evolution that I've seen in my career, where you know, CTOs and CIOs in the '90s were at the little kids' table, uh, and executive went, you know, go do your thing. We run the real business. Now, fast forward 20 plus years, and they're at the main table. Everybody's a technology company, whether you're Pepsi or whether you're Microsoft. Um, I think we're going through that same, in regards to skills in this discussion, we're going through that same evolution right now where you're going to see uh, you know, CHROs who are sitting at the little person's table and everybody said, just go hire some people. We've got the big plans. So I believe 20 years from now, CHROs and chief people officers are going to be at the big table and they're going to drive strategy. Why? Because it's going to become more and more about skills and people and outcomes. And so my company is very fixated on that, uh, Astrum U. Um, and our focus specifically around is trying to drive and understand individuals' attributes, the skills they capture through distance travel, and pick those up and verify them to help them better understand learning and working outcomes. Oh, man. I'm so glad to have both of you here. I know we're going to have such an awesome discussion today. Um, and, uh, I, I said this before we started the show, but I'll say it here on air. You know, I also was a humanities major and was told, you know, learn how to read, write, and think, and you'll figure out the rest. Um, and, you know, I have indeed, but it was uh, hard for those first few years as I was, you know, muddling through and as a generalist, just saying, you know, I'm smart, I can figure it out, give me a chance. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things about the, the whole skills-based hiring and, and talent discussion is it's, it's all about opening up opportunity. There are so many people in this country who have things to contribute, who want to contribute, um, but they've been left on the sidelines, you know, for a variety of reasons. And um, um, governments, companies, others are, are working to overcome that. Um, and I think that that's really exciting. Uh, we have to pause here to take our first break. Uh, we'll dive back into our conversation with Adam Ray and Juanita Serrano after a word from our sponsors. You're listening to Federal News Network. 
Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk. We're diving back into our conversation. And as we're doing so, I think it's really important for us to kind of define what we're talking about here uh, when we're talking about um, skills-based hiring. And so I'm going to have each of our guests um, describe what they what they see this to mean and, and, and some of the implications there. And Juanita, I'll, I'll invite you to do so first. Yeah. So... From an employee perspective, from an individual, we can see that there are rapid changes in the market. Um, lots of changes in technology, as you've, we've talked about, um, digitization, automation, um, World Economic Forum talks about how 50% of jobs will need a change in skill set by 2027. So I really think personally that it's important to do a an asset mapping of your own skills and where you could potentially um, fill any gaps that your specific industry might need or wider. You know, I think that traditionally we've looked at undergraduate, graduate degrees as a straight line to a specific career. And that doesn't have to be the case anymore, especially, you know, this group, we've seen that already. Um, so there's just a wide a wider opportunity for folks to be able to identify something that they want to learn and, and take that on and then be able to work in that field. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adam. Uh, from from kind of the, the the technology, the data standards lens, like how do you translate this idea in, into what well, you're doing? Well, I mean, it, it, it's funny. So the, the traditional way in which you're translating skills is, you know, about pedigree. Uh, and so it's, you know, what's your degree? Uh, and when people say you don't have a degree, then the default becomes some type of direct assessment. And so there's not, I mean, these are pretty blunt force filter tools, uh, you know, that we're using right now. And it, it's not that it's, it's a bad thing. It's just what we have. And so, you know, the, the idea is, is, is kind of as Juanita was referencing, this is not a, you know, the degree should be part of the process, but it's part of a journey. It's just a milestone along a journey. It's not the end destination. And so, especially when you think about all the change and disruption happening at the skills level, um, you know, if, if I could take a, take a step back, the step back, I would say, for answer your technology question there, Jason, is, is you know, the compression of time um, being able to need to change your skills has radically changed in the last hundred years. Uh, you know, all these things that are going on used to be able to have enough time to adapt. You know, industrial revolution all the way up to even, you know, cloud services. There was usually decades, at least years involved. Now we're talking, you know, quarters, months, a couple of years. I don't think anybody on this call would say, you know, hey, I'll have 10 years to adapt to AI in my space. You might have a couple of years because workflows take time to integrate through, but you're going to have to, and that has skill ramifications on the individual. So, you know, what technology is doing is, you know, like I said, is, is typically been direct assessments. What we're actually doing at SMU is, is we're, we're focused on inference to predictive recommendations. We're trying to ascertain and, and pull from verified data sources and index an individual skill to get a confidence understanding of what we can see. And so, for example, if someone's done taking a certain amount of certificate classes and the transcripts there, or traditional education, or their HRIS records, or ATS records, all these are data points that can start to give us a little bit of an insight of the attributes and skills the person has taken through their journey of life, their work history. Did they work to work, uh, do they work two jobs? Or take a better example, how about an army individual in the army and their JST? or their ERB or ORB, their military transcripts. I mean, you know, that's a ton of verified information on what this person's done, but the problem is, is that the world can't translate. 
And so we're very fixated on translating that down, breaking it down into attributes and giving a 360 degree view. And I think more companies that can start to look at those type of other data sources through whatever means, indirect or direct assessment, combinations of both ideally, we're gonna be able to give people a better understanding of, okay, what's my options? Because, you know, I, if I could steal, I'll pull one more storyline out of why I think, you know, skills-based is, is going to be the future, but right now is so early, is uh, my own son, who went to traditional college, hated it. That's, I guess, the best way. Well, he had fun, don't get me wrong, but, uh, but he didn't get anything accomplished, uh, <laughs> comes out. And so I'm like, okay, got to start life, got to go work. Comes back to me after 10 months of that on his own and goes... This this sucks, Dad. Uh, I think I, I want to become a cybersecurity analyst. I'm like, okay. And so now here, I'm in the space. I run an AI company. This should be a really easy thing. I should be able to figure out which program's going to give the right skills to be able to get to the best outcome. It was brutal. I had to call a half a dozen of my CTO friends. I, we did research together. We looked over. We are trying. And it was very hard to be able to ascertain which program was the program that was going to give him the right amount of skills for his interests and areas to the right amount of outcomes at the post component. And here I am, I'm a person that's in space with means, uh, access network, everything. And I had a hard time figuring out how to tell my own son what skills boost to get from a cybersecurity bootcamp. How the heck do we think a, a person in an underserved or marginalized community is ever even going to have a chance? We're going to need to make this easier and more quantifiable so that people can actually understand. We don't need to make the decisions for them. People imply that. I think what we need to do is help people give them the information so they can make better decisions based on data versus you may be random luck. Like, candidly, I've had a lot in my career and probably most of you have as well. So very fixated on that problem. And I think the more we get to it, the better off we are. No, thanks for sharing that that story, Adam. I think it it really kind of bring bring brings it into reality uh, in a really powerful way. And, and Juanita, I didn't know if you wanted to to react to to any of what Adam shared or kind of talk about how to you through your partnerships and other things you're doing are kind of connecting these dots between job seekers, local organizations, you know, academic and other organizations. So I think that you know each of those and part of the value stream they all want people to be successful, um, it's, it seems to be connecting the dots that's, that's been a missing ingredient. Exactly, Jason. Uh, Adam, so much of what you were talking about resonated deeply with me. This is a great example. Uh, we have a partnership in Tulsa uh, running with the Aspen Institute's Collective Impact Model, where we've brought community organizations, workforce agencies, foundations, the community college, uh, higher education, universities, also employers to the table to say, this is what we're seeing in our community. This is the need, specifically historically excluded populations. So we're looking at the Northeast portion of Tulsa. How can we best serve the community by giving them access to education and skills, but also aligning with what the market needs so in Tulsa, they have this program, which is wonderful if you're already a remote worker, called Remote, remote Tulsa to attract remote workers to Tulsa. What they were realizing through that is that they have people in Tulsa that could also be doing those jobs and they have more jobs to fill. We visited the Bank of Oklahoma. They had just recreated their cybersecurity center. It's beautiful. It's made for neurodivergent um, individuals as well. It's excellent. And we had a, a real discussion around the difficulty of skills-based hiring in spaces where traditionally it's been very clear to Adam's point, you have a pedigree or you're able to very clearly explain um, skills through a specific path. And you know, that's something that we're still trying to figure out. So Adam, I'm, I'm hoping that you come up with a really good solution to that because it is something that we're seeing and we, we're having a hard time generally wrapping our arms around how to best translate that across 
from non-traditional learners all, all the way to employment into very, you know, entrenched hiring practices that need to be reworked. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in on that one. The, uh, it, it's funny. So it's like there's there's two sides of the coin in this challenge. I mean, ultimately, it's a three-legged school, right? You've got the, the hiring managers, you've got the, the educators, you've got the individual. Um, and so we've already talked a little bit about how difficult it is to really break down and understand the individual's attributes, what skills they bring to the table. And, and so we've got to do a better job there. But um, I, I would say, you know, if it doesn't matter what we do there if we don't figure out how to break down the skills based hiring itself and the challenge there. So just as the example of, you know, look, there's all these different certificate programs out here that, that my son could have done. And what choice do I have? Inverse that to the hiring manager. And, you know, they'll get 10 calls from cybersecurity programs going, we're the right one for you. We're going to create the skills based individuals for you. They have no way of understanding like the quality of those programs, the outcomes, let alone do the skills that those people bring to the table and are being trained on align with their need set. And so uh, we spent a lot of time in the state of Missouri starting a project with uh, United Way working now. Sherm just recently announced they're going to be doing uh, strategic work with us and a partnership on this. And the whole fixation is around skills-based hiring. And so we've been talking to large employers like uh, Edward Jones and, and local regional uh, uh, certificate programs like Empower. And, and some of the work really is around basically saying, OK, look, right now, skills based hiring goes through the side door. Um, everybody says in the government and everybody says an employer, we're open for business for non-degree hiring. You know, that's awesome. And it's a great start. The problem is, is that everyone in HR goes. Uh, okay, um, how do I do that? And then everyone with, and, and, and like, think about it, the hiring managers on the other side are saying, oh, this is even worse. I had a hard time figuring out if the person had the skills typically I needed when you were putting it into a pedigree tight little box. Now you're telling me you're ripping the box away and go figure it out. And so we really need to be thinking about the handoff uh, between you know, what educators do and what employers do and, and nothing personal against LinkedIn to handshake to whatever they fill a need. I get it, but it's inadequate for workforce training uh, for workforce training. It, it, they come in different shapes and sizes. These are lifelong learners like your example, Anita, where you went back and found and became a full stack developer. We, we need to be thinking more about that. And so maybe the, the as we continue this conversation, I'd love to discuss a little bit about things that we've seen there and what things might be able to be done. Absolutely. I, I think that especially those implications for, for the kind of the managers in the HR who are, who are caught in the middle of uh, one tide coming in and another tide going out while, while we're still figuring this out. Uh, we definitely want to want to unpack that some more. I do want to touch on, you know, the part, the role of partnerships here in, in driving and accelerating that change. Um, and but we've got a pause uh, for for our second break. We'll be back to our conversation on Fed Talk in just a moment. You're listening to Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Shaw, Brentford, and Roth. One team working all three branches, judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Brentford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbrentsford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're entering the second half of our program talking about all things skills-based hiring. I've got my guests Adam Ray and Juanita Serrano. 
Uh, we're going to dive back into the conversation uh, right before the break. We were we were talking about you know where the rubber is really meeting the road um, on these discussions and and kind of the the changing nature of um, what this really looks like on the ground. Say you're a hiring manager. Say you're an HR professional, kind of caught in the middle of the way that you have done things. Uh, folks asking or telling you that this is a different way that we're going to do things, but we, we don't yet have the, the practices. Uh, we, we're still working through the tools um, and, and there's a lot of learning going on here. And so I'm interested to hear from both of you and, and maybe at, we'll start with you, Adam, and then go over to Juanita. Like, let's, let's just continue down that path. What, what are you all seeing, particularly with a focus on those groups, but other things that you think are important for, for our listeners to hear? Yeah, no, no, I'd be glad to. So, I mean, if we think about skills-based hiring and everybody's talking about it, as you mentioned earlier, Jason, um, I think the real challenge is, is it's great to talk about it, but it's another thing to how you're going to systematize it so that you can actually do it at scale. Um, and the, the challenge that we've seen so far and some of the work we're doing in Missouri with some of the partners that we're lining up is that effectively, though everyone wants to do it, effectively no one knows how to do it. And so what you see is, you know, you've got some organizations, I mean, there's no workforce development organization within HR. It, what it really is, is there's a DNI group, there might be a group that's taken on some workforce development, but it's another HR group. There was a business unit who's finally said, I need more people, so I'm just gonna go put something together. Um, you know, so, Hooray that people are willing to at least attack the problem, but that really creates a, a difficulty in how they come into the organization and, and how we've seen it handled. And I won't name the company so I can use the specific data points, but you know, we, we were dealing with one company with their chief human resource officer and talking to them about how they're looking at this. And I'm like, look, it's philanthropic. We, we, we've given up on figuring out how to really systematize this. And so what we do, is we invest five million a year and we pick 10 workforce training programs and we try to hire about 50 people a year out of it. And I'm like, so you're telling me that's your skills-based hiring that, training? That doesn't sound like uh, such a good idea. Yeah, I mean, but it's the problem is it's like, you know, you think about people caught in the middle. People caught in the middle are sitting here yeah. going like, we want to. Like to, I think your example, Juanita, like, I try to tell executives, like, look, you need to stop thinking this is about philanthropy and thinking more about economic development. You've got a ton of talent within your region that if you could just upskill them enough, could fill your high in demand roles. So don't think that you have to go get every net new person in technology, for example, from the West Coast. How about you look in your own backyard? And so this is a conversation going on in St. Louis right now where we're kind of we're dealing with this. But the challenge really is because there's no system. People think of us, Noah, don't drop it. They throw money at it because they want to feel good. They want to do something, which I get is great. But, you know, that doesn't solve the problem. We need to figure out how people can actually start to do this in a quantifiable way. Because ultimately, if we're going to scale it, it's got to be based on ROI. It's got to be based on people making decisions that are good for mobility for them and companies making decisions where they're investing in those gaps. And so I love like to you and the work, you know, you're, you're doing around workforce training because we need more of it. The, the challenge is going to, of course, be how do we help HR absorb it? Because they're not designed for it at all, right? Exactly. Um, we see that employers are looking for talent and it's very clear that the partnerships are key because we have to figure out the how together. And usually the innovation is starting with individuals. So it is someone on that HR team that knows there is you know, multiple open roles that cannot be filled with traditional applicants. And they're trying to figure out where can they source the talent where the individual is seeing, okay, this business is changing. I know I need to figure out something about AI, but how do I feel confident in my decision to invest the time, financial resources to acquire those skills, and that having the confidence that there will be a job on the other side of that. Um, so that bridging that gap has been key to some of our successful partnerships, really identifying, okay, this is the pilot. 
so that the larger org does not um, feel like transformation has to happen on a huge scale, we're going to try it and see if this innovative way of looking at skills-based hiring will then solve our problem. And we've seen that it has. Like, um, we have this wonderful partnership with Netflix. And historically, you had to parachute into Netflix. Um, they didn't have an early talent um, part of their HR team to acquire talent. They were just getting people who were already experts in their field. And they mm -hmm. saw that that was a gap, but they weren't really sure how to build that. And so we partnered with them to be able to identify, okay, this is this is what these individuals need to be successful. And at first, that early talent um, focus was very much on traditional early talent. So coming out of college, still in college, um, getting CS degrees or something aligned. And they've now brought in their aperture to say, actually, we can include newly acquired skills and consider that also early talent. So how do we find those people and then foster those skills further while we, you know, we take them under our wing and hire them? You know, I'm thinking of, I have so many different things going on. My going through my mind uh, uh, right here on Fed Talk in our the last episode I hosted, we had uh, Don Kettle and Bill Eggers talking about their new book, Bridge Builders, and it's really mm -hmm. about how you know it, it's a you need people who have that ability to connect the dots. Um, you know, and they're talking about it particularly in you know implementing big public public policy programs, you know, whether it's the, the infrastructure law or, or, or the, inf the, the Re Inflation Reduction Act. But I think about it here in the context of workforce development. And I know that um, through the Commerce Department and through some of those laws, there is a bunch of money going in into workforce development. And, and Adam, you said, you know, for companies, there's got to be ROI and, they, you know, it has to make sense for them. But, but they can think about it not just through that give money to philanthropy, but, you know, we can build up our local economies uh, more fulsomely. And one thing that I thought was interesting was last week here in DC, the Chamber of Commerce hosted, you know, a big event with their, their T3 Innovation Network. And, and I, I know your company presented there, Adam. And I think to me, the fact that you have a big group like the Chamber of Commerce and a lot of major foundations from all across, you know, the spectrum putting money behind us, it shows that there is a strong interest between the business community, philanthropy, and others, and just interested in, you know, are there any takeaways from that? Are there are there any implications for the fact that there is a group like that, you know, working together and, and, and connecting those dots at that level so that we can get closer down to the ground and, and hopefully deal with the, our, our, our HR workforce piece in, in the near future? Yeah, no, look, I think it's, you know, Hey, it's it's awesome the U.S. Chamber of Commerce would would lean in on this with the government, with the NGOs and the foundations, and with the educators. Uh, there's too long been an information asymmetry gap between education and industry around really what you know skills and training is needed. Uh, historically, we've just made the investment. Uh, and a lot of a lot of to plow through. The reality is, uh, you know, skills changing is going to be happening too quickly now. Coupled up with the fact that you know our economy since two thousand eight was what uh, fifteen and a half, sixteen trillion GDP, we're twenty seven trillion now. Uh, and so, if we want to continue to grow that economic engine, we're going to need people that have the necessary skills. And so I think that's why you see the Chamber of Commerce lean in. They're like, look, we just can't throw people to the side and let it be their problem anymore. If we're going to need to be able to figure out how to help people make that transition. And so we presented at T3 with uh, National Student Clearinghouse. National Student Clearinghouse is, you know, for those not aware, is, is, is the um, transcript provider for all of post-secondary education. It's the primary. It also works with the Department of Education. And what we were illustrating is some of the work we've done in breaking down army transcripts so that individuals in the military can get into a better position, understand how they can transition into civilian life and what skills gaps they might need to address. And so it was funny is I think they, they invited, uh, I don't know, there's like a hundred organizations that applied to present in this room, about three, 400 people or something of that nature uh, uh, of leaders within the government. And, um, 
Uh, they invited eight to present. We were one of the eight, and so we were very honored to do that. Uh, but one thing that struck my team when they came back and we were all talking about, they're like, we're the only ones that mentioned ROI. Uh, it's yeah. like no one else is talking about ROI in this equation. And I mean, how can you not talk about the financial impact in, in this scenario, whether we're looking at the ROI from an individual's perspective of what does this mean to my economic mobility for my family, especially first-generation individuals that are looking to really break out, or you're looking at the companies themselves who are trying to make better investments. And right now, you know, companies look at upskilling or learning and management training as, uh, you know, the first thing they cut in their budget when things are tough. Uh, and so, you know, we'd like to see that change. I think there is a real quantifiable story for it, but it's going to mean that Chamber of Commerce, government, NGOs, educators, perhaps all start talking a lot more. And we're going to have to start sharing a lot more of that information so that we can get to better outcomes. Because it is what we needed. And if I, you know, when you mentioned, you know, the, your partnership with, and, and how it was epicentered around one individual, Hey, y'all love it because that means one individual is trying to help an organization change. Uh, B, we need to get off the qualitative stories where it's that guy or gal who made the, the effort. And it's just, that's what we do. Because the biggest concern I've seen with other workforce training problems uh, programs is when that individual leaves the organization, oftentimes those programs go to the wayside because no longer is there a champion there in the hallways telling everybody, no, you, you need to be thinking differently about this. We really can get a lot of great talent and they might not come in the package you expect, but they bring the skills we want and arguably might be a lot better than the packages that you've been looking at historically. And so um, it, it's, it's a challenge, but I, I'm very excited about some of the, the activities going on. I know that, you know, um, we, we see an opportunity to be able to really tackle and systematize this. And I think for my, my money, workforce training is the place to play. Love traditional higher education, work with a lot of chancellors, presidents, and provosts, but they're going to be the people that follow uh, because they're part of the structure. It's harder for them to move. Workforce training programs, like the stuff you've done at Trilogy, uh, when you, like, they can be very adaptable. They can move quickly. They can adjust quickly. And so finding more employers that want to work with with workforce training to think about it, I think is the key to some of the, the challenges and how we break down this in the future. Awesome, so, so much great stuff, Adam. Uh, Juanita, I wanted to, to get you in here. We have about two minutes before we have to take uh, our, our final break, but any any color to add to that or, or from your perspective, particularly with working with a lot of these universities, but others who are running you know smaller programs, um, again, just anything that you would, you would add or, or fill in there. You know, I think that workforce agencies really are um, taking that investment that the government has made through, you know, WIOA funding um, specifically for a lot of what we're doing and identifying that they need programs that are focused on bridging that digital skills gap. Um, where the, the university system may not have been able to move fast enough to create a new degree, uh, prompt engineering for AI, for instance. And, you know, in Colorado, we work closely with workforce agencies there and, um, you know, TechP is a, a huge proponent for trying to drive economic mobility within Colorado, specifically with digital skills acquisition. Um, and I love to see it. Awesome. We've got to pause here for our final break. Um, I do want to come back to this topic that I think you both just mentioned, kind of like shiny object syndrome. You know, do we need do we need AI degrees or AI prompt engineer degrees or other things like that? Or is there a different way to to think about that? You know, I, I'll, I'll, get, I'll, I'll get yelled at by our audience if we don't at least talk about that that piece. And <laughs> it is funny because I see so much attention gravitating toward that topic but you know, not as much robustness around these other areas uh, so that we can really implement and capture the benefits there. Uh, so we'll touch on that in our final segment, but we've got to pause here for our, our final break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. <laughs> 
Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk. We're entering the final uh, segment of our discussion. And uh, I did want to talk specifically about AI for a minute. You know, I thought I could get away with, uh, with not doing it, but at the same time, I knew I wouldn't be able to avoid it given we have the CEO of an AI and technology company uh, here with us. And, and the reason I bring that up is obviously it has so much potential. We have this data. There's this data everywhere. What if anything are we doing with it? How, how do we make better use of that? Um, but, but particularly what I see here in the public sector is a lot of focus on the solution, the AI itself, you know, some interest in how do we build up a workforce who can do that? Are those prompt engineers? Are those other people with various digital skills? But, you know, the question that I ask is, are we solving for the right problem? Are we asking the right question on, on when we are focusing on the AIs? And so, Adam, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And then Juanita, you know, any perspective you may have from, you know, partners or, 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 or customers who are coming to you all? Because I imagine these are conversations you're having with folks who want to stand up programs and stuff like that. Uh, so, Adam, we'll come to you first. Sure. Well, uh, yeah. As a CEO of an AI company, it's it's I have a, I I feel like, um, and I've been around the industry long enough. You know, uh, for those that remember when the cloud services hype started, suddenly every company in 2010 had cloud slapped on the side of their website. I kind of feel like I'm seeing the same thing right now. Every company suddenly is an AI company, even if they didn't know how to spell AI prior. Uh, but you know, there, there's definitely a lot of hype in this space. In fact, uh, I just read a Harvard business review article, uh, about is prompt engineering a thing, or is it going to not be a thing in like three years that the short of the story is, is guess what? It's not going to be a thing. It's actually something that's just a component piece. What is going to be a thing is critical thinking and the logical deductive reasoning that goes through and trying to understand a problem that you would build in a prompt engineering process to get to an outcome. Well, that's gonna be valuable 36 months from now, just like it's valuable right now. And so, you know, as a guy who runs an AI company, we're, we're really fixated on how do we get to those type of challenges? How do we get to those type of skills? I mean, I've got, you know, a dozen PhDs working for me, for gosh sakes, and I'm the dumbest guy in the room by a mile. Uh, and, you know, and so, but what I do know is that if we can really start to understand and break down and, and show people, hey, here's where it applies right now, here's where it can apply in the future. So, for example, when large language models came out in generative AI, we saw some immediate opportunity to leverage that along with the machine learning, natural language processing work we were already doing to streamline and really get some efficiencies at scale for some of our tagging and continued understanding and cataloging within our engine. And so, you know, that's a practical application. And I think you're gonna see a lot more of that. And so I would, you know, caution people when they're thinking about this and they're looking at their industry, start asking the question, get away from the hype and the shininess and start asking the, the practical question is where can you apply this to problems and solutions? Because people don't do things for a thing reason. They do it to get to an outcome and the outcome needs to be a solution. So there's types of training or opportunities to learn skills that I think we can come from AI that can be applied. And so I, I would caution more people into that, but it's definitely, uh, you can't get away from the discussion no matter who you talk to. Thanks so much, Adam. Uh, Juanita, I'm curious about your thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I think it's AI is the newest version to Adam's point, cloud or web development or cybersecurity, data science. If you fill in the blank with any of that, the common thread there is that our our job market technology is moving so fast that the shiny thing feels shiny for a year or two, and then we're on to the next. And to Adam's point, getting those core skills of 
logic if if we're talking about digital skills specifically once you learn one language or one way of thinking about a problem you can apply that to a, a number of things we got to ai because there were things before it that were building up to it you know so it didn't just appear and i don't think that the next technology that will be the next shiny thing will just appear so if you're investing in the talent now it will still pay off i think we can't be disillusioned that the one you know the one prompt engineering course will solve all of our problems um but i think that there it is a key to opening up the door for other possibilities. Uh, another thing that we're, we're doing right now is really focusing on sharing some of these learnings. Uh, we just released our outcomes, our transparency and outcomes report for 2022, where we talk about our partnerships um, at 2U and really the outcomes that we're seeing from all across the board from degrees to digital skills acquisition to exec ed and sharing that so that we can see this improvement across our whole economy. We want everyone to be able to utilize um, everything that the workforce has to offer. You know, one thing that really strikes me as I hear you both talk about this is kind of the the two sides of the coin to this discussion. You know, there's, I think, a reality that all employees are going to need these digital skills, you know, to to, to be successful, to be able to move their careers forward, or just to, to be able to have careers at all almost um, in the next few years. But then there is this this aspect of human skills, you know, the 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 problem solving, the communications, the the being able to think about and work through a problem and talk to others about it, and and it seems like there are there are different opportunities in people's lives and different moments where we're going to be cultivating each of those, um, and and it's just really important to not just focus on one or the other, but but we have to, to have, have to bring them both together. Um, and sometimes well, and they it, get lost in that in the sauce. If you if you riff on that one, like so, the industry cleanly agrees with me on that point, Jason. Because I mean, like, I don't know if any of you caught like a month ago, ETS and Carnegie uh, made an announcement that the Carnegie unit, the unit in which we use to use uh, a time based tracking to understand the skills that are set up for all accredited education, they're going to revise it, and the revising mm -hmm. is going to be to go away from time and to get to skills. So, so this is Carnegie. This is the, the you know, the, the institutional construct that we've used for education for over 100 years in, in this country is, is emitting like, guess what? Got to change. It's got to get to a skills-based component. Now, in fairness, they've got a lot of work to do to figure out how to do this. But the, the acknowledgement that they're doing that, and the reason ETS is, is, is stepping in and working with them on this is they want the, the focus on durable skills. They want to start to capture more of those uh, cognitive analytical communication skill sets, which I think, you know, if, if you use the analogy, hard skills have an expiration date that's very short. Uh, you know, the life cycle can sometimes be, you know, counted in months, whereas, you know, durable skills compound. Uh, and they grow over time. And so if we can start to capture that, I think we're going to find people in the strangest of places that bring you know, incredible talent to the table. We've just never been able to look at it through the right, right lens. And so that's why I'm excited about a skills-based economy. I want to see more collaboration, but I'd love to see us drive more, more towards quantification. And quantification doesn't mean that you limit a person. I think it just, we, we can use data to give people a confidence. This is what we see so far in the data. It doesn't mean it's the totality of the human being, but it means what we know so far, and then we hope to learn more. Juanita, um, how do you visualize? Like, what, what do people get when they come out of, of a program? You know, what does that transcript, what does that record look like? And, you know, to the point of, like, what skills are durable, which ones are portable, which ones might, might fade out? You know, like, I, th I think, like, you know, there are implications for the resume, right? And like, how do people tell their story? And and I think that um, 
I'm curious if that's a place that kind of pulls together a couple of these threads um, and, 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 and builds on, on some of what Adam just shared as well. What I've seen is because a lot of our upskilling focuses on gaining skills in a very time constrained way, that there can be a crisis of confidence coming out to say, okay, I know this, but do I really know it? Everyone else has been working in this field for 10 years. Um, can I do this? And we have a really wonderful career services team that focuses specifically on transferable skills. So to Adam's point, those durable skills, how do you take what you were doing as a bartender and now become a web developer? What are the, the communication skills that you gained? The ability to handle multiple um, customers at one time, that still translates to how you deal with multiple tickets coming in and communicating from a, a tech team to a client. I think that that works. I mean, I, my first job was in like a UPS like store, customer service, you know, um, weird, weird versions of packing boxes very securely, uh, other, other skills that are more, more durable or portable. Um, but you know, uh, it doesn't say on my resume anymore. But, yeah. but it, you know, I think folks who might skip past having a service job like that, you know, you, you learn certain kinds of humility, you know, and, and things like that, that that you don't have otherwise. And, you know, Adam, I remember reading your bio, you know, you know mowing lawns and doing stuff, uh, work, working your way through school. I mean, it's the reality mm -hmm. for many people in this country and around the world. Yeah, I think, too, you know, coming out with a certificate or even badges, digital badges that allow in other individuals to look at what exactly that certificate means. So what kind of skills did you gain when you went through that program? Um, did you learn a specific stack of technology? And really, I think it ties into what Adam is working on to be able to show that and what people are gaining from these alternative ways of education and skill acquisition. Absolutely. Well, we're almost at the end of our time here. Uh, I have learned so much and really appreciated our conversation here today, Juanita and Adam. I did want to give you each a chance to just let folks know where they can kind of find out more about you and each of your organizations. Um, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do uh, Juanita first. Juanita Serrano, again, she's the Vice President of Social Impact and Innovation at 2U. Thank you for being with us. Uh, where can folks uh, find out more about to you? Yeah, I would highly encourage you to go to edx.org. That's edx.org and just peruse. The, the market now is looking for lifetime learners for your skill acquisition to continue throughout your entire career. And I'm just hoping the best for you. So check it out. Awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, Adam, uh, Adam Ray, the founder and CEO of Astrumu, thank you for being with us. Uh, where can folks find out more, more about you and the company? Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely. They can uh, go to astrumu.com, uh, take a check out. Um, you know, I think our fixation is really working with uh, educators and uh, the education universities, as well as the workforce training, the HR departments. And looking at this longitudinal data and, you know, I'd love for them to understand and explore more of the solution sets, but at the end of the day, as a data platform, we're, we're very committed to that and feel free to check it out and we'd be glad to share more about it. Awesome. Well, uh, Adam and Juanita, again, thank you so much for being with us here on Fed Talk. That's all the time we've got for today. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford and Roth. Have a great rest of the day.